Uh, hey, would you stand with me this morning for our gospel reading? We're going to the book of Luke, chapter 21. This is Jesus speaking. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So when you think about your life, what is it that you most long for? That may seem like a strange question for you. But for every one of us, there is some sort of unfulfilled part of our being, some unfulfilled part of our existence, some unrequited part of our lives. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's children, maybe it's doing something like finishing school, maybe it's getting the right job or a better job, or maybe it's not having to worry about money, maybe it's living in a certain place. But no matter who you are, there are things that you want in your life that you currently don't have. And and you want these things not simply because you want them or because they would be nice to have. You want them because you believe, even if you don't believe this or know this kind of front of brain, you want them because you believe that they will fill some sort of empty space within you. If I can just have this or do this or go there or be this, then I will be more whole in some way. Whether we realize it or not, this is how many of us think. And those kinds of feelings are not unique to you. They're not unique to me. Uh, They're actually a part of the human experience that theologians and philosophers have been taking note of for millennia. The early church father, St. Augustine, said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, you being God there. And Augustine wrote that line in his famous work, The Confessions, and he was someone who had sought in his younger years to fill that empty space in a number of ways. Uh, Dan Graves writes of this particular line, uh, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He writes of this line in the Confessions and gives it some context saying, behind Augustine are a succession of desperate searches for fulfillment. 
excessive pleasures, false, false religions, philosophy, dissipation. Dissipation is a word, and we saw it in our scripture text this morning. It's a word that means uh, reckless living um, or kind of uh, giving everything in an, in an overly excessive or reckless way. Uh, dissipation, distractions. Uh, Augustine's life early on was all about these things. He didn't believe in Christ. He bought into a false religion called Manichaeism and uh, pursued all kinds of different paths. They were futilities that left him so weary of himself, he could only cry out, how long, O Lord, how long? And at the very moment when he uttered that cry, Circumstances led his eyes to a passage in Romans that showed him that he could be freed from sin, and shortly afterwards he was baptized. But the full thought that Augustine comes to, though, is not just that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God, but the full thought is this, you, God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find our rest in you. It's the notion that we're not currently fully experiencing the kind of life that we were designed for. And that totally jibes with the meta narrative of Scripture, the overarching storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, we were created for life with God, walking with Him, talking with Him, truly experiencing His presence, but we were separated from those things because of sin. The life that we were designed for with God was altered and cut off and not immediately available to us in its fullness. And that disparity between what we were created for and what we are currently experiencing is greater than I think we even realize. I don't even think that we fully grasp the chasm between where we're at and who God is and and what he is and where he is and what it is like to be fully with him. It's so great that we don't even realize when our deepest longings are actually not for stuff or money or children or careers or success or homes or things, but are actually for God. And Augustine is certainly not the only one to experience or notice this. Uh, The 17th century theologian Blaise Pascal wrote in his uh, seminal work, The Pensies, what else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. It's like there was something inside of us or there is something inside of us that used to be there. And I can still like feel the place where it used to exist, but it's not there anymore. This, he says, Pascal, this he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Seeking in things that are not there the things that he cannot in those that are, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. When you look inside of you, is there just this infinite abyss? Like, have you noticed this trajectory where I want, I want, I want, I want. There are things that I feel like I need to fill something or make me feel more whole. And I go after those things and I get those things. And then I only realize that there's another level to all of this. And the things that I thought would satisfy me don't satisfy me anymore. 
They don't seem like major things anymore in the way that they once did. Now it's something else entirely. This is what he's getting at here. These thoughts by Pascal have come to be known as the concept of the God-shaped whole. This idea that we all have this infinite abyss inside of us, that we're all walking around with this space to fill, and that we're largely looking for things that cannot even begin to suffice. Perhaps more familiar to us, though, is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writing in Mere Christianity, uh, which if you're not familiar with Mere Christianity, it was originally a series of radio addresses that Lewis made to the British people uh, just in the middle of World War II. And it's kind of astounding in today's world. Lewis was actually contracted by the British government, by the BBC, to like make these uh, apologetical and evangelistic sermons basically on the radio because they thought it would be an encouragement to the people of Britain in the midst of the war, in the midst of the bombing of London and all that kind of stuff. So just can't imagine something like that happening today, and yet it's what happened. But, but he said of this phenomenon in mere Christianity, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world, that I wasn't made for this place. These things that are within me that just nothing satisfies, nothing does it. Maybe I'm not made for this world. During the same time period, Lewis preached a sermon at Oxford University that was later published as a book called The Weight of Glory. And in The Weight of Glory, he, he made this point. Um, he said that often, even when we recognize that the longing within us is for God, even when we like, can, can like discern that, that what I really want is him, even when we recognize that the longing within us is for God, we often don't even go about filling that void in the right way, even when we know what the void is. Because just like uh, just going to church or just reading your Bible or just trying to pray more might not necessarily do anything. He said, if you ask 20 good men today what they thought the highest of the virtues, 19 of them would reply unselfishness or selflessness. But if you asked almost any of the great Christians of old, he says, they would have replied love as the highest of the virtues. And his point here is that we're perhaps inclined to think that fulfillment is to be found through either us having or not having something, either It's going to be through me getting things, or it's going to be perhaps through me living like a life of asceticism where I get rid of things. And and his point here is that, and he quotes Jesus, he, he quotes Jesus and he says, you know, that Jesus has this famous line about taking up your cross, right? But but he says the full line is deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. There are like three parts to this. He isn't just telling us to do something. Jesus isn't. He is showing us what to do. That's that follow me part of this, that he's already like modeled it. He's already kind of walked down the road for us. The call is to follow our Savior who didn't simply deny himself and didn't simply take up his cross, but he did so as an act of love so that we might be reconciled to the Father. The end goal was not just his self-denial. The end goal was love. 
And that if we want to maintain the void within us, if we want it to stay, if we want it to remain, then we should absolutely focus on ourselves. But if we want to see that void filled, we follow Christ and we pour ourselves out as an act of love to others. He concludes, he, C.S. Lewis, concludes by writing one of my favorite lines in all of his work. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. Isn't that an incredible picture? I'm going to go on making mud pies in this slum because I can't even imagine the joy of what is offered to me through Christ. I'm going to keep pursuing these things, these materialistic things, these worldly things, because I just can't even fathom what truly is out there for me. So, last week in studying the minor prophet Joel, we considered the reality that we are living in the last days, right? We're living in this period between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. Peter said he was living in the last days, so surely we are. Um, and there is coming a time when Christ will return and will restore all things. Today, we see Jesus' own words in our text. Um, to this effect, in which he responds to his disciples' questions concerning signs. How are we going to know when this is getting close? How are we going to know when this is about to happen? And much like Joel, Jesus speaks of both a uh, near future and a distant future, like way out in the future. And the near future he talks about in the first part of this chapter, which we didn't read this morning. And he foretells the destruction of the temple he t foretells the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, that all came to pass uh, in the lifetime of the apostles. Only just a few short decades later, in the year AD 70, uh, there was a revolution of Jews against the Romans who were occupying the land. This group of Jews known as the Zealots rebelled against the Romans, and it created a, a kind of a, a, a mini war. And the Roman Emperor Titus, or who would eventually become the Roman Emperor Titus, uh, besieged Jerusalem and eventually destroyed it and destroyed the temple as well. And so Jesus' words come to pass very quickly, but then Jesus seems to turn in our text today and focus in on a time in the distant future when he will return. So look with me at verse 25 in our text today. Luke 21, verse 25. Jesus says, And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near." So let me reiterate something that I think I said last week because I think it's so important whenever we're reading prophetic texts like this. 
For some reason, whenever we, and, and by we, I'm, I just mean modern readers, whenever we read prophetic texts like this, our tendency for some reason is to want to approach them as if they are some kind of secret code that we have to crack. Like we're reading it right now and, and Jesus is saying these things are going to happen and these things are going to happen, but these things are clearly vague and symbolic, right? And so it naturally makes us go, well, I wonder what those things are. And it naturally makes us begin to speculate about things we see in our world around us. And every single generation has done that. Every generation, all they can do really is look at the world around them and go, do I see anything that in any way kind of sounds like what Jesus is talking about? And to some extent, every generation has been able to say, yes, we see things that might be what Jesus is talking about. I mean, what generation has not had some sort of solar or lunar eclipse or some sort of like comet passing by or something happening in the heavens and the sky that hasn't said, oh, maybe this is a sign, right? And, and, but what I want us to see here is there's endless speculation about what Jesus meant here, and there's no shortage of voices who are pointing at certain leaders or governments or natural disasters or wars or events in our world as signs that the return of Christ is imminent. But what I want you to notice is that Jesus has a larger point here than us cracking some sort of prophetic code. His point is that we would engage in the process of preparing ourselves for these things. That we would, as verse 28 says, straighten up and raise your heads. Or as verse 34 says, that we would watch ourselves. Or as verse 36 says, that we would stay awake. Let us not miss the primary point here by endlessly speculating about whether or not certain world events are what Jesus meant, what he was talking about or not. We've already established we're living in the last days. Let us primarily be engaged in the task of watching ourselves and staying awake. But what does that mean? What is he talking about? How do we do that? Well, we stop trying to fill the God-shaped hole within us with things that won't suffice. Or in Lewis's analogy, we stop making mud pies in a slum and instead go on vacation to the beach. Verse 34 is key here. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Dissipation, as I mentioned earlier, is, is sort of an old word. We don't use this word anymore. Um, I'm kind of surprised that the ESV uses it um, because it's just not all that common. But it means spending money or resources recklessly without thought. And if you're a person who is engaged in the act of dissipation, another old word that would be used to describe you is the word prodigal. And what's interesting is just a few chapters earlier in this gospel, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus gave us an example of what a lifestyle of dissipation looks like. And I think that is the image that Jesus is getting at here, that of the prodigal son who took his father's wealth and went and squandered it on what? The text says, on reckless living. Or as Lewis said, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. I'm going to go take what I have, and I'm going to go squander it on all of these things that I think are going to bring me fulfillment or contentment or happiness or peace or joy. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way in the message, be on your guard. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Otherwise, that day is going to take you by complete surprise, spring on you suddenly like a trap. You want to be surprised by the return of Christ? You want to be caught off guard? You want it to spring on you like a trap? Then live a life where you are the sinner and where the primary goal is satisfying all of your physical and material desires. You want to stay awake? Then instead turn and pour out your life and your money and your time, not in satisfying the desires of your flesh, but in love of other people and the love of your neighbor. You know, this whole chapter in Luke began with this little tiny account um, that I think has some significance for what we're talking about. The very beginning here of chapter 21 Jesus and his disciples are in the temple, and here's what it says starting in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, is it just me, or does that seem like wasteful and reckless living? This is all you have. You have nothing else to live on. You have no way to buy food. And yet she gives it away with complete abandonment. But not to herself. Complete abandonment to God as the source of everything. So Jesus doesn't condemn her, does he? He doesn't denounce her as living prodigally. He praises her. And what he insinuates is this. She's really all in. She's really all in. These other folks, these rich people, they give the appearance of being all in. They come into the temple and and they make what seem like lavish donations, but it's really no skin off their back. Like they're giving out of their abundance, but not her. She's awake. Friends, the season of Advent is all about this state of expectant longing, this waiting that we've been talking about all morning, that Christ has come and Christ will come again. And the call that Jesus is putting on us, not only this morning, but but in this life, in this life where we are living in the last days, in this life where we are called to be awake and to be expectantly watching and waiting for the return of Christ. The call that Jesus is putting on us is to truly examine our lives and to ask, am I living in a state of hopeful expectation that the void in my life will soon be filled by Christ? And as a result, I don't have to pursue these other things anymore. I don't have to look to these other things anymore. I can truly turn my focus to love. I can truly turn my focus to other people because Christ has promised that there is good news for me and that all of my deepest longings will be fulfilled in him. Here's what I believe. When Jesus is truly my hope and joy, giving away all that I have suddenly doesn't seem like that big of a deal. When he really occupies that place, giving away my money like the rich young ruler, it suddenly isn't a big deal anymore. 
When Jesus is my satisfaction and peace, suddenly I'm not looking for that in a relationship or in my marriage or with another person or with my children or in sex. When he is my salvation, suddenly I'm not looking to politicians or governments or courts or the military or even my own preparation to save me. And I can live in a state of full abandonment to Christ, loving others in the way that he has loved me. And so I'll leave you today with Jesus' own words, the one whom we are to look to as our model for life, the one who has gone before us, who took up his cross and called us to take up our cross. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So may we go and do likewise. Let us pray. Father, as we begin this season of Advent, we give you praise and thanks for the promise of Christ. That Jesus is not uh, a Messiah who came and left and, and somehow we missed the boat, but instead that he has saved and he is saving and he will save and that he will return. And with him, he will bring the fullness of your kingdom. And truly today, Father, we pray your kingdom come. God, we pray that we would experience it, even though it's, it's an unknown to us in many ways, God. And, and for that reason, it perhaps is scary to some of us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us an abiding sense of peace, that you will fulfill every longing in our hearts, that we don't have to look to the things of this world. We don't have to look to the proverbial fruit on the tree to find the things that we most hope for, the things we most want, the things that will fulfill us, God. I pray, Lord, that you would so convince us of this truth that it would truly alter the course of our lives, that we would so believe that you are actually the source of all joy and fulfillment, that it would change our pursuit of empty things, that it would change the way that we interact with our neighbors, our family members, our friends, the poor. God, would you so convince us that you own the cattle on a thousand hills? So convince us that you are able to provide for everything that we need? convince us that you are able to bring true meaning and purpose to our lives, God. Would we be so convinced of that that we would find rest? Give us this vision of the holiday at the sea. Give us this vision of what it looks like to truly be with you in your kingdom. And keep our eyes focused on that, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen.